afternoon, America, and welcome to The Dean's List. Today is part three. We are exploring a deep dive of the Protect Prayer in Schools Act. This is the bill that Matt Gates is proposing to provide for a cause of action to remedy prohibitions on personal prayer in schools. We've been wanting to dive deeply into this thing for a while now, so we're doing it. This week, we're just we're taking some time. And we're taking enough time really to defend it properly. This bill needs some defense and the best way to defend it. And I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe Matt would say, I I don't need you to defend my bill, but we want to. We want to support it. Maybe that's a better word. We want to support it. And I think the best way to do it properly is to support it historically. Things that Gates is saying in here, there is enough historical support to lay a foundation really for us to have prayer back in schools. And today we're going to, we're going to see how it was even taken out. I mean, we've been laying a foundation really for a couple of days that this country is, it's a country built in its foundations of Judeo-Christian values, Christianity, Judaism, the Bible, both testaments, old and new. And so we, uh, we, we've we spent some time looking at the points. Now, I will say this. Today's part three. I really encourage you to go back and listen to part two before you listen to part three. Part one, you know, it can go in any order. It, it, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't really apply to an order. But part two we started to dive into Gates' fifth point, and we weren't able to finish his fifth point. And so that's a continuation today in part three. So you really want to go and hear part two first. Because, you know, what we talk about today, we, we laid a foundation for it in part two. So if you are listening to part three in podcast, maybe uh, put it on pause, go find part two and listen to part two. And then come back and listen to part three back to back. And you are going to be, uh, you're going to be shocked and amazed. You're going to be upset. I I promise you, if you are a a freedom-loving, God-fearing patriot, you are going to, you're going to be upset. If you're operating heavy machinery after today, or, you know, don't, don't operate machinery while you're listening to the show today. I know I said that yesterday, but we didn't really get into the parts, at least that I feel, are really going to make you go nuts. And today, I think we're probably going to hit it. All right. Quick review from yesterday. Point five of this bill says, our founding fathers would be appalled to learn the establishment clause of the First Amendment was being weaponized not to prevent the establishment of a state religion, but to suppress religion in schools across the states, contrary to the free exercise clause. So the the First Amendment, when it speaks of religion, it's broken up into what we call two clauses, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. The Establishment Clause is this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. It's pretty straightforward, straightforward. The, the the free exercise clause says, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So we have two clauses, and both clauses are designed to put shackles on Congress. 
They're designed to put shackles on the government, not on individual citizens. So what we have today, and this is what Matt Gaetz is referring to, the Establishment Clause has been turned on its head to be weaponized against the Free Exercise Clause. Any expression of religion, for example, in a public school, is now being deemed as Congress making a law respecting that religion. That's how it's that's how it's been turned on its head. And therefore, there's no free exercise of it. You know, because you can't establish a law or you can't establish a religion, therefore you you can't freely exercise your religion. And if you are in a in, in a public place, you know, say a government-run indoctrination camp, and you decide you want to pray, then that is akin to Congress establishing a religion. Yeah, so you see how this is this is upside down. We we talked about the original intent of words. I'm not going to read through the quotes, but I, I read you quotes from Noah Webster, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, uh, about really when you want to, to go back to research original documents, documents of old, as it were. You need to discover the intent of the person writing the document. It just makes sense. And Noah Webster, who wrote, you know, the dictionary, this man knows words. And I am, I'm staring at a copy of the original 1828 Webster's Dictionary. And this guy knows what he's talking about. And he says, look, over time, definitions of words change. You know, people use them differently. But if you want to know the meaning of a document, you have to go back to the original meaning. How did the individual use the term or the word when he or she was writing the document? That's what Webster says. And Jefferson speaks to this to a Supreme Court justice when determining the meaning of the Constitution. He says, look, you have to go back. You have to go back and you have to look at the spirit of the thing. You know, what was happening around? You have to look at the debates. And these guys were alive then. Jefferson was alive during the debates. He participated in them. The Supreme Court justice was alive during the debates. And Jefferson is still saying, you have to go back and you have to review the record. How much more for us today should we go back? How much more should our Supreme Court justices today go back and review the record? You know, but uh, in, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and beyond, we had a Supreme Court that just refused to do that. And, and we'll explain why. And it's you're not going to be happy about it. I also cited two justices of the Supreme Court, James Wilson and Joseph Story. James Wilson is an original justice nominated by Washington. James Wilson is a signer of the Declaration. He's a signer of the Constitution. This man knows his stuff. And he says, you have to look at the original intent. And then Joseph Story, who was a justice nominated by Madison. And, you know, he says the same thing. So we're laying this groundwork of how to apply ultimately the Constitution to our, our modern situation. And you don't do it by changing the Constitution. 
and flipping the First Amendment on its head. You do it by going back to the to the original debates. And so we did that yesterday. I, I read to you from the congressional record the meaning, essentially, of the word religion. We talked about the word religion and how, in their vernacular, they use the word religion interchangeably with the word denomination. So in their time period, when they're talking about religion, if two people are walking down the street and one says to the other, oh, what, what religion are you? He's not asking, you know, are you um, are you Hindu? Are you uh, Muslim? Are you Christian? Are you are you Buddhist? He, that's not what he's asking. He's asking when he says, "What religion are you?" He's saying, "What denomination of Christianity are you?" Because the they were all Christian, as I said to you yesterday. I think the total, the percentage, ninety eight percent of them are Protestant. They're not just Christian, they're Protestant, 98%. And so when they talked about religion, they were referring to what denomination of Protestantism are you? That's their point. And, you know, we, we went through the debate on the First Amendment and how they actually had the word denomination in there instead of religion. You know, Congress shall make no law respecting a particular denomination, and they had two or three drafts. And finally, they settled on the word religion. Well, this is important. It's important that we know what the founders meant. What was their original intent? And going back and reading the quotes and reading the documents and reading the things that these guys wrote and said, we can determine that Christianity was to be the foundation of the nation, but there was not to be one particular denomination that received the sponsorship of the federal government, because that's what they fled. They fled the Anglican Church, and they didn't want to go back to that. They wanted freedom. That was the point of the Declaration, freedom. And they wanted to be able to, to choose to worship God in, in their own way. So, then uh, we talked about the importance of religious liberty. And I, I read to you a quote from Washington where after he after he becomes president, he writes this letter to another Baptist organization in Virginia. And he says, look, I, I, you know, if I even had the slightest inkling, I'm paraphrasing here, that religious liberty would be in jeopardy, I would have never signed off on the Constitution. I mean, that's what Washington is saying. Um, Tucker and Sherman, who were representatives from different states, they they both said, I don't even think we, we need the First Amendment. Well, Tucker said, I don't think we need the Establishment Clause. And Sherman said, I don't think we need it in there at all, because it, it's not listed in Congress's abilities or, or job description, so to speak. Because in, the, in Article One of the Constitution, Congress has a list of things that they can do. And so these two men were saying, why are we even putting in there that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion? Because we already know Congress can't do that because it's not in the list of things that they can do. Well, I mean, we, we see now that there are things that Congress is doing and participating in that are not in the list of things that they should be able to do from Article 1. 
So, you know, people looking down the road into the future are are thinking, well, you know, this behemoth can and will probably stretch its tentacles into areas that that it doesn't belong in, and they will do it in a way that they can, you know, mince and, and turn and twist words and, and twist the language. So let's let's put in there, let's put shackles on them. Let's say that Congress can make no law respecting the establishment of religion. Let's shackle them. And then let's say that Congress cannot prohibit the free exercise. Ever. So we're going to put shackles on Congress. It was not intended to put shackles on the citizenry. Mm, that, that, that wasn't it at all. It was to shackle Congress. And then I read you even two more additional quotes from Jefferson and a quote from Madison, where they, they are both stating repeatedly that the First Amendment states what it was intended to state, that Congress shall indeed not have any authority over religion, over establishing a religion, or over interrupting individuals who wanted to freely express their religious beliefs. And so that's that's where we ended yesterday. So today I want to dive back in and, and, and piggyback off of this idea of, of what the what the founders were saying at their debates at you know during this time period. Indeed, what did the First Amendment mean? And then we're going to dive into the the letter, the famous Danbury Baptist letter. We're going to you know we're going to see exactly what the Baptists were writing to Jefferson. And we're going to look at Jefferson's reply. And, you know, what did that reply actually mean? Uh, and and then, you know, it, you can decide for yourselves. You can be the judge. And, and, and you can put on your constitutional lawyer hat. And you yourself can determine what does the First Amendment actually mean. And I think if we look at it and read it, you know, you don't have to be a constitutional lawyer here to read the Constitution to know what it means. I mean, I appreciate the input from, you know, the Constitution scholars, you know, men and women that pour over this document and study it, and they have some insight. But you don't have to have a Juris Doctorate degree to be able to read the Constitution. Every day, men and women read it. You know, farmers had it. Business people had it. Uh, everybody was reading it. It was probably stuck in their back pocket. Everybody, I'm sure, had a copy of this bad boy. So, um, you know, I guess on that note, David Barton tells this story where he is speaking to a constitutional lawyer, and they're talking about the uh, the wall of separation that you know Jefferson writes in this letter to the Danbury Baptists. And David Barton says to him, well, you know, that's not in the Constitution. And the attorney said, well, yeah, it is. It's the First Amendment, you know, wall of separation between first, you know, church and state. And, and Barton said, well, I mean, let's open it up and, and show me. And the, the Constitution attorney opens up the, the Bill of Rights, goes to the First Amendment, and he's flabbergasted that it doesn't say anything in there about the wall of separation between church and state. And David Barton says, now you're a constitution lawyer. How is it that you don't know this? 
And the guy said, well, in law school, we weren't required to read the First Amendment. We, we, we read all these other things. We, we read all these other textbooks. And so we just thought that the wall of separation between church and state was actually there. And, and David Barton's saying, so you mean to tell me your whole time in law school, you were not once required to actually read the amendment? Not even once. All right. Uh, blown away by that. N number one, I'm just, I'm flabbergasted that they were not required to actually read the Constitution. They're, they're Constitution attorneys. This is, this is their specialty and they're not required to read the document. That's number one. Number two, don't you think you'd want to read the document? I mean, if this is going to be your thing, if, if this is your specialty, don't you think you actually want to read the document? I mean, if you're going to be a brain surgeon, if, if you're Ben Carson and, and, and you're going to school to be a brain surgeon, don't you think you actually want to, to, to look at a brain? Don't you think you actually want to watch another surgeon performing surgery on an actual brain? Well, I mean, we read books about, you know, what other people had to say about the brain. So, you know, we're pretty good. Ah, we're going to go with it, right? Yeah, let's go. Let's get this thing done. And, and so that's what that's what we've come to. That's what we've come to in this country. The uh, and you know what? we're going to talk about we're going to talk about the law schools. I did mention yesterday that Chief Justice Joseph Story, who sat on the Supreme Court under Madison, started Harvard Law, and we're going to take a look at Harvard Law today. We're going to dive into it. Okay, but let's pause for a break. We will pick it up on the other side. You are listening to The Dean's List on America Out Loud Talk Radio. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix Rx. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discussed the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution, the miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. 
America Out Loud listeners can go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Welcome back to the Dean's List. I am Dean Bowen. You are listening to America Out Loud Talk Radio. You can find us here on AmericaOutloud.news Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And we are happy to have you along. You can also find us on the iHeartRadio app, or you can download the free America Out Loud Talk Radio app for your iPhone, Android, Alexa, or you can catch us on podcast uh, within about 24 hours. Every every show goes into podcast. So wherever you wherever you find your podcasts, you can find us there with you. So thank you for being a part. Thank you for joining us. The new email is the dean.list at protonmail.com. The dean.list at protonmail.com. Questions, comments feel free to shoot me an email. I do love to read the emails. Uh, and if I can offer some help to you, uh, I'm happy to do that. If you have some homeschooling questions, if you're you know, searching for a Christian school in your area, uh, I am, I'm, I'm happy to be a resource for you. So feel free to reach out to me, the dean.list at protonmail.com. Or you can follow us on Instagram at the Dean's List 33 and uh, you know we have some some fun stuff posted there. Really, the receipts are there. The receipts that show what happened, what happened since the 1960s, where we are culturally, what what has befallen us. So feel free to reach out to us there. We're happy to have you along. Back to the matters at hand. So we're looking at point five. And uh, it's it's taken us some time to get through point five because I really want to lay a foundation. I really just want to to let you see where we were, what the founders originally intended for us to be, and where we are now. And so we're still in the what the founders intended stage. We haven't really crossed over. We're about to cross over here in, in just a minute. Uh, some resources that I am looking at, though, that I want to share with you, in addition to original source documents that I have in front of me, which, again, you can go to founders.archives.gov if you are if you want to look at original documents. Uh, high school history teachers, I don't care if you're in public school or private or where, where you are, I implore you use original source documents because it gives you an opportunity to talk about the true history. And it also offers an opportunity for you to explore what the founders truly believed. And that also includes faith. If you're brave, if you're a public school teacher and you're brave, I tell you what, I would do it. I would absolutely do it. I was having a conversation with someone not long ago who, you know, runs charter schools. And we were talking about, you know, what if, what if, you know, what if you're a Christian and you're a charter school? The person said, well, I mean, you can't really talk about the Bible. And I said, but I would, I would talk about it. Well, you can't, you just can't, mm, you can't. 
But if you are going to use historical documents as a source in a history class, you know, you're going to. I mean, that's that's my route. I would do it. I would go after it. Be brave out there. Make it happen. All right. So we are looking at the fact that 98% of the people in America during, during the revolutionary period were Protestants. They were Protestant Christians. So when they used the word religion, they, they were asking, what denomination of Protestantism are you? And, you know, we, we kind of discovered this going back to the original debate. I want to read to you something that George Mason wrote during this time frame. Mason is a member of the Constitutional Convention. And George Mason is really referred to as the father of the Bill of Rights. He was one of the men who was very concerned about the states losing their rights. He was very concerned about the states being absorbed into the federal government, and he was pushing the Bill of Rights, hence his title, the father of the Bill of Rights. He said, all men have an equal, natural, and unalienable right to the free exercise of religion, according according to the dictates of conscience. So he's putting it out there. It's it's unalienable. This, this right to the free exercise of religion isn't given to us by government. It is God-given. And that, I'll, I'll go back to his quote, and that no particular sect or society of Christians ought to be favored or established by law in preference to others. All right, so this is, this is the point of the Establishment Clause. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And Mason is saying here that no particular sect or society of Christianity ought to be favored or established by law in preference to others. So he's he's adding to the point that when we say religion, we're actually talking about a denomination of Christianity. All right, August 15th, 1789. This is from the Congressional Record. I'm going to read a portion of the congressional record for you, and it's so interesting. Mr. Peter Sylvester of New York had some doubts. He feared the First Amendment might be thought to have a tendency to abolish religion altogether. Hmm. Mr. Peter of Syl Mr. Peter Sylvester of New York was prophetic, because that's where we're at. Our 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 current state of affairs is that the First Amendment has been turned against itself in an effort to abolish religion altogether. It has started in the public square. It started in, in schools. It's gone. And now it's, it's working its way into the rest of society. I'll continue on here from August 15th, 1789. Mr. Elbridge Jerry of Massachusetts said it would, it would read better if it was that, quote, no religious doctrine shall be established by law, end quote. Mr. James Madison of Virginia said he apprehended the meaning of the words to be that, quote, Congress should not establish a religion and enforce the legal observation of it by law, end quote. The state seemed to entertain an opinion that under the clause of the Constitution, it enabled Congress to make laws of such a nature as might establish a natural a national religion. 
To prevent these effects, he presumed the amendment was intended. Hmm. So he felt like somewhere in the reading, somebody could assume that Congress would have the power to establish some sort of religion nationally. And that's why Madison thought, we need to put this in. We need to put shackles on these, these individuals, on this behemoth. I'll continue. Mr. Madison thought if the word national was inserted before religion, it would satisfy the minds of honorable gentlemen. He thought if the word national was introduced, it would point the amendment directly to the object it was intended to prevent, that there should not be a national religion, which is not to be confused with a state religion, because these, these states all, you know, as you saw yesterday, it's in their constitution originally that, you know, you had to be something or other, a Protestant or a Christian, or, or believe in God, or believe in the divine inspiration of the Bible. And so the, the debate that took place in the states as they're ratifying the amendment is also very interesting. Listen to this. This is Governor Samuel Johnson's comments during North Carolina's ratifying process. He says, I know but two or three states where there is the least chance of establishing any particular religion. The people of Massachusetts and Connecticut are mostly Presbyterians. In every other state, the people are divided into a great number of sects. In Rhode Island, the tenets of the Baptists, I believe, prevail. In New York, they are divided very much. The most numerous are the Episcopalians and the Baptists. In New Jersey, they are as much divided as we are. In Pennsylvania, if any sect prevails more than others, it is that of the Quakers. In Maryland, the Episcopalians are most numerous, though there are other sects. In Virginia, there are as many sects. You all know what their religious sentiments are. So in all the southern states, they differ. As also in New Hampshire, I hope, therefore, that gentlemen will see there is no cause of fear that any one religion shall be exclusively established. You know, so he, he's saying, I, I don't even know that we need this. The debate was, do we need an amendment that says Congress does not have the authority to establish one religion or one denomination over another, when all these various denominations are prevalent in various states? In this same uh, North Carolina convention, here's what Henry Abbott had to say. Many wish to know what religion shall be established. I believe a majority of the community are Presbyterians. I am, for my part, against any exclusive establishment, but if there were any, I would prefer the Episcopal. So they're talking about, you know, what are we going to establish here in North Carolina? Because we have that right, because the, the right was only shackled against the federal government, but the states could establish their own if they chose so chose to do. And Abbott is saying, you know, most of us are Presbyterians. I don't think we should establish a particular re religion, but most of us are Presbyterians. But if I had my druthers, I'd rather be Episcopalian. I'd rather align myself with, with those guys. So uh, let's look then at the letter. This leads us to the letter that the Danbury Baptists wrote to Jefferson. I'm going to pull up a portion 
of said letter. So the, the Danbury Baptist Association in Connecticut, they are concerned about this amendment. And here's what they here's a portion of what they had to say to Jefferson. Again, I encourage you, go to founders.archives.gov and look at this original material. Our sentiments are uniformly on the side of religious liberty, that religion is at all times and places a matter between God and individuals, that no man ought to suffer in name, person, or effects on account of his religious opinions, that the legitimate power of civil government extends no further than to punish the man who works ill to his neighbors. But, sir, our constitution of government is not specific. So he's there, they're, they're, they're starting to express their worry here. And they continue that religion is considered as the first object of legislation because it's the and the First Amendment. And therefore, what, re, what religious privileges we enjoy, we enjoy as favor granted and not as inalienable rights. And these favors we receive at the expense of such degrading acknowledgments as are inconsistent with the rights of free men. So his concern here is that, that the concern of the Danbury Baptists is that the very First Amendment introduces something that Congress cannot do in terms of religion. And he said, our fear is that religion will be deemed not an inalienable right, but a right that, that comes from Congress, a right given to us by man. And that's not the case. It is not a right given to us by Congress. It is a right given to us by God. It is a God-given right. So here is Jefferson's response. And this is the this is the famous letter here. Jefferson responds on January 1st, 1802. I'm just going to read a portion of it. It's not a long letter. It's actually only two paragraphs. I'm just going to read a portion of the first because this is this is where we pull out the meat. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should, quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state, adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of the rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. All right, so you just heard it. You heard Jefferson refer to the wall of separation between church and state. The context of Jefferson's metaphor here, his wall metaphor, is that the state cannot insert its will into religion. That religion is an inalienable right. 
He says the legislative powers of government reach action only and not opinion. That the, the legislative power of government is to act if there is ill will taking place. Okay. And there's other, there's Supreme Court cases that refer to if they're in the name of religion as something horrible is happening, like a child sacrifice or something where some ill will is being purported on a neighbor in the name of religion, well, then the government has the authority to step in and act. But the government doesn't have the authority to insert its opinion if there isn't any ill will happening. Jefferson's metaphor of a wall between church and state then is very clear. It is intended to be what he intended it to be that the federal government did not have the authority to interject itself. And it's, it's, it's pretty clear to us. And we have, we have court cases that, that support this. We, so this, this 1947 court, which flipped this idea on its head is not the first court to talk about this letter. It's not the first court to introduce uh, this metaphor of a wall of separation between church and state. But other courts looked at it and they interpreted, they interpreted Jefferson's meaning in the exact context in which Jefferson meant it. Mm, and that's how it should be done. We should have Supreme Court justices that go back and look at original intent that look at original meaning that get the spirit of it that you know they understand the spirit of the delivery the what was actually going on and it's not that hard to do i mean in this case you can read the letter and you can see oh, all right it's very clear what jefferson meant all right on the other side i do want to talk about a particular court case uh, a couple court cases, and then we're going to uh, see how this thing got flipped on its head and how it all changed. All right, we'll see you on the other side. You're listening to The Dean's List on America Out Loud Talk Radio. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation we know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe. Air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. 
No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Welcome back to The Dean's List. I'm Dean Bowen. We are exploring a deep dive into the bill that Matt Gates is proposing. It is a bill that is designed to protect prayer in public schools. It's called the Protect Prayer in Schools Act 2023. The subscript of the bill is to provide for a cause of action to remedy prohibitions on personal prayer in schools. So uh, it's, it is a, a needed bill. And, and, I, and I've said this, it's not going to be a cure-all, but it's a start. Prayer back in schools would, would just be a beautiful thing. It would start to change the landscape. And I, I did a whole show on this a couple of weeks back that it could be the thing. This could be the thing that, that turns it around. It would change the landscape. And so we've taken a few days to just historically offer a de- defense of this bill. And, and maybe a better way to determine it would be support of the bill. A, a historical foundational support of what Matt Gates is proposing. And we are really into point five. And it's taken us some time to get through point five, which Matt Gates says our founding fathers would be appalled to learn the establishment clause of the First Amendment was being weaponized not to prevent the establishment of a state religion, but to suppress religion in schools across the state, the states, plural, contrary to the free exercise clause. And we've spent some time here because this, these two clauses are so important. And discovering what the founders meant when they put these clauses into, you know, when they etched them in stone, what was their intent versus where we are now. And so we've spent some time really laying this foundation on what the founders meant. And I think it's important. We needed to take the time to lay the groundwork here. And I encourage you, if you've not listened to part two, we're in part three today. If you've not listened to part two, Go back into part two because you're going to get more detail than what my little reviews here in part three have been able to bring you up to speed on. So we finished the last segment reading to you the the correspondence between Jefferson and the Danbury Baptist Association. And their reason for writing him the letter is they were concerned about the First Amendment. They felt like religious expression is an inalienable right. They use the word inalienable, and the declaration they use unalienable. The two are used interchangeably. They're both correct. But they say this is a right from God. This this right for to, to express our worship of him freely is a right that he's given to us. But now it's you know it's in in the constitution and we're worried that government's gonna think mm, maybe this is a right from us. Maybe this is a government-given right. And their point is it's not. And in the Declaration, Jefferson says the inalienable rights are from God, and it's the job of government to protect those rights. All right? 
So it's the it's the job of government to protect religious expression. And here in, in this First Amendment, we've shackled the government and we've said, you can't do these two things. You can't establish a state-run religion and you can't prohibit the free exercise thereof. So the Danbury Baptists are concerned. And Jefferson, in his response, says, you know what? I agree with you. Uh, it, is, it is an inalienable right. And government does not have the ability to legislate uh, opinion or belief, but they can legislate action. And so he's he's basically saying, if religion is going to infringe upon its neighbor, it's, if there's something that's going to happen that's going to cause ill will towards somebody, then the government can step in. Because the Danbury Baptists were saying, look, the role of government is to just step in if someone's being injured. You know, if there's ill will happening to, to your neighbor, then yes, government should step in. And Jefferson is in full agreement with this, that, you know, the government can step in if those actions are happening. But not in an opinion, not in, not in your belief. They can't infringe upon your belief and your free worship of that belief. There is a wall of separation between church and state. And the government cannot infringe only unless there is some physical action that is, in a sense, breaking the law. All right? So that's pretty clear. Throughout legislative time, court cases have referred back to Jefferson's letter, and they and they have read it in, in context. And there's a case here I want to bring up. It's from 1878. This is Reynolds v. United States. The Supreme Court quotes heavily from Jefferson's letter in this case, and they and that they're noting the fact that Jefferson's view is the federal government uh, was not to interfere with religious expression or values, except in a very narrow instance. So the instance here is that Reynolds is a resident of Utah, and he is a part of the Mormon church. And he's sentenced to two years of hard labor, and he's given a $500 fine by a federal court for violating the anti-bigamy law. You know, so he's a Mormon. He's got a couple wives. Congress had passed the statute against polygamy because it perceived that such a practice contravened good order and peace. All right. By practicing polygamy, however, Reynolds, who's a member of the Mormon church, was following what was then one of the central tenets of his religion. So he appeals to the, the Supreme Court. And he's arguing that, you know, this anti-bigamy law is in direct violation to his First Amendment right of, of uh, free exercise. Okay, that's that's pretty, pretty straightforward. The court agrees with Reynolds that the free exercise of religion uh, underlays the founding of the United States. It also holds that government officials have a right to regulate behavior as part of religious practices behavior that would be considered uh, in the language or odious and violate basic notions of morality. You know, at this time, every single state had a law against polygamy. Um, more important, the court created a belief action dichotomy. So this is where they, they really 
refer heavily to Jefferson's letter because, you know, Jefferson says the court can act, but they can't infringe upon the belief. All right. The, so here's what the court says. The rightful purposes of civil government are for its officers to interfere with religion only when its principles break out and overt acts against peace and good order. And so that's what they were saying here that, you know, polygamy is breaking out against peace and, and good order. I'll go back to the court. In this, it is found the true distinction between what properly belongs to the church and what to the state. Congress was deprived of all legislative power over mere religious opinion, but was left free to reach religious actions which were in violation of social duties of subversive of good order. So, you know, they 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 reference Jefferson's letter and they reference a good portion of it. The federal government could not regulate certain religious actions. This is what the court can, concluded, that religious doctrines would become the superior law of the land if they couldn't. Uh, Chief Justice Morrison wrote this. To permit this would be to make the professed doctrines of religious belief superior to the law of the land, and in effect to permit every citizen to become a law unto himself. Government could exist only in name under such circumstance. So at this point, I could do anything and say, that's my religious belief. This is my religious practice. You know, I want to go out there and burn that house down because, uh, you know, it's my religious practice to, to burn large things. All right, well, we have laws against arsoning. I know, but hey, free exercise of religion. You know, so... The Supreme Court is saying here, uh, yeah, but but it can infringe upon laws that are that are already intact. Okay, and they reference Jefferson's letter quite a bit, all of it. I shouldn't say all of it, but large portions of it. However, in 1947, in Everson versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court for the first time interpreted. Jefferson's separation phrase as requiring the federal government to remove religious expression from the public arena. It interpreted the First Amendment not as a limitation on government interference, but rather as a limitation on religious expressions and principles. That court, unlike previous ones, did not reprint Jefferson's letter, which is, you know, as I've said, it's very short. They didn't reprint it. They cited only eight words from the letter, and the eight words that they cited were, quote, a wall of separation between church and state. The court did not give the context of the phrase. They did not mention Jefferson's numerous other statements on the subject, which I have read to you at least three quotes over the past two days. And Jefferson has many other writings on this. It did not even mention the previous Supreme Courts who had used Jefferson's letter to preserve religious principles in public society rather than remove them. So 1947, we had this court. And this court kind of turned this thing on its head. And so we asked the question, how did this happen? How in the world did this court not refer to the whole letter. Why did they just take out the eight words? 
a wall of separation between church and state, and then used those eight words, not in their proper context, but used those words to give government the authority to remove religion from the public sphere, to essentially remove the free expression. The justices on that 47 court, seven of them were appointed by FDR, two of them by Truman. Hmm. That should tell you a lot. So how did it happen? All right, let's dive in because what I'm about to express to you here is so interesting. Okay, this is the part in the show where if you are driving, you know, feel free to pull over. It's one of those, it's one of those pullover moments. If you're out in the farm, you're operating heavy machinery, you know, just shut her down, take a walk in the field. All right. This is that moment. And it comes down to Charles Darwin. 1859, he published his Origin of Species. I mean, we've talked about it. His theory that species could evolve inspired a political theorist named Herbert Spencer. It was Spencer who coined the term survival of the fittest. Spencer advocated applying Darwin's evolutionary theory to other areas of academia, meaning, hmm, let's apply this evolution theory to other, other things and let's have things evolve. Let's have governments evolve. Let's have, well, I mean, let's have legislative cases evolve. And this kind of brought us into the progressive movement, this progressive of, of things evolving. I don't know how you can progress past freedom. I don't know how you can progress past the Declaration of Independence, which, which gives us inalienable rights. You can't progress past this stuff. But they take words, the evil Marxist progressive left, they take words and they twist them. And we've talked about this. They're masters of, of the narrative. And they, they, they take the word and they don't apply its definition. Or they say they are, but they're actually doing the opposite. So this guy named Spencer comes up with this idea of applying Darwin's evolutionary theory to other areas of academia. Beginning in 1870, a Harvard law professor named Christopher Columbus Langdell pioneered this whole notion of applying evolution to the legal process, a Harvard law professor. Now, who started the Harvard Law School? Chief Justice Joseph Story. And it was Joseph Story who, who adamantly said, when you are interpreting the original documents, you have to go to the meaning of, of what the writers meant. You have to look at the debates. You have to study their purpose and their intent behind it. And here we have a professor from the very law school that Joseph Story started. And he is advocating uh, applying evolution to the legal process. He innovated what's called the case precedent. Hmm. We've heard that a lot. Precedent. If there's something that a previous court has determined, then guess what? Precedent has been set. 
And therefore, courts that follow have to do what that court said. I am I am so absolutely against this. I'm just, um, you know, it kind of happens this way even in, in schools. You know, discipline, for example. You know, student A does something and then student B, you know, does something else. But the punishments might have been different. And, and and then there's complaint. Well, they did, you know, this and this, but their, you know, precedent was set with student A. So student B has to follow exactly, you know, the recourse has to follow exactly student A. It doesn't work like that. Situations are different. I do not buy into the notion of case precedent. But evolutionists would want this whole idea of things evolving across the board. They would absolutely you know, wanted into everything. Oh, I'm looking at the time. I am looking at the clock. My friends, oh, I'm telling you what, I hate to stop here, but we're going to have to because there just is not enough. There is not enough time in the afternoon for me to dive into it. This is part three. Okay, we are going to dive into part four tomorrow. So, Tomorrow, I will explain. You need to go back and listen to part two and three before you get into four. Part one, you know, pull it up whenever. But two, three, and four, they uh, they really need to be a, a, a part of succession. Okay. Uh, I hope you're doing okay. I hope you're doing well. We are just, we're laying the groundwork here. And we have been laying the groundwork for a couple of days about where we started as a country. And now... We're just about to get into what changed, 1870, and 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 this this um, professor from the Harvard Law School is beginning to propose maybe things can actually evolve. So we'll dive in, we'll pick it up tomorrow. But that's all the time we have for for today, America. Thank you for joining us on the Dean's List. Get out there and encourage your friends and family to get on the Dean's List. Let's unite to renovate the age.